Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Dr. Catherine Jellison, director of the history department at Ohio University. She also is the co-chairwoman of the Rural Women's Studies Association. She talks with us about the role of rural women in the United States, especially in the temperance movement, as well as the women's suffrage movement. She also talks about the role of rural women in obtaining greater educational rights for females. Dr. Jellison, uh, one of the things that I know that you study are, are the history of rural women. And that seems to me as an outsider to be a group of women that really have not been studied all that much. Can you talk to us about what your interest is in that group? Sure. It's ironic that rural women tend not to be studied as much as urban women by historians and other social scientists, but especially historians, because through most of uh, American history, most women were rural women. It's only in 1920 that the Census Bureau declares that we are a majority urban nation. So uh, throughout the colonial era, of course, 19th century into the 20th century for a couple of decades, the majority of the U.S. population was rural, and therefore the majority of the female population was rural. Um, I became interested in studying rural women specifically when I was in graduate school at the University of Iowa. And uh, my first research project was about rural women involved in uh, the Women's Christian Temperance Union there in Iowa. And people may not know, but the largest uh, women's suffrage organization in the country in the 19th and early 20th century was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, or the WCTU. Um, It was a pro-suffrage organization because its most dynamic leader, a woman named Frances Willard, believed that the only way that what today we would call alcohol abuse could be stopped is if women had the power of the ballot and they could vote in legislators who uh, would pass laws outlawing the sale and use of uh, liquor or uh, women could vote on referenda um, disallowing the sale and use Figuring of, of that liquor. Figuring men would never pass that. <laughs> right. Well, it's, uh, you know, before the 1920s, alcoholism wasn't understood as a disease, and instead people who drank to excess were seen as, you know, 
morally corrupt. And the drunkard, to use the 19th century term, was always gendered male. And it's not, of course, as we know today in medical science, that women can't be alcoholics, too. It's just that male drinking took place more in public, you know, at pubs, at saloons, and things such as this. And the belief was that alcohol was ruining the American home, you know, by people who were affiliated with the WCTU, that husbands were who were spending too much money on alcohol weren't spending it on rent or house payments or food or clothing. Uh, for their families. Taking away from their children. Exactly. Or that, you know, some men, if they drank to excess, were abusive to their family members, their wives and children. So uh, the WCTU saw uh, gaining the ballot for women as part of its larger home protection uh, goal, as it was phrased at the time. So when I was studying the WCTU in rural Iowa, I was studying women who, yes, they <laughs> they were temperance advocates, but they were also pro-women's suffrage. And the WCTU was such uh, a force in rural as well as urban America. I just uh, became interested in the particular character that organizations like that took in rural areas. And so that kind of got me started with a particular interest in what rural women, as I said, the majority uh, population of women through much of our history, what what they were doing uh, in major reform movements and other activities, um, suffrage, obviously, temperance, um, women's educational reform. Because as you said, Tom, so much of what we read about in the textbooks is, oh, what were the women in New York doing? What were the women in Boston doing? Right. Uh, but what were they doing in the countryside? That's what I was interested in. My grandmother, who uh, my grandfather ended up being a sheriff in Ohio, but my grandmother, uh, well before he took office, was part of the uh, temperance union mm-hmm. in southwestern Ohio. Okay down around Hillsboro. Oh, right, which is where it was founded. Which where it was founded. And her belief was, as as you described it, that uh, it uh, would uh, rid the country of moral reprobates. Mm -hmm. That was her her phrase, Mm -hmm. moral reprobates. And uh, she wrote about it and everything. But but it was also tied in with the church, mm-hmm. and, and the women seemed to be more affiliated, at right. least with the church beliefs. Is, right. is that true? Or yes, is that just absolutely. A- really, by the second generation of um, settlement in Massachusetts Bay Colony, women were making up the majority of those Puritan congregations. So the feminization of uh, American churchgoing began very early, and I think the best explanation for it, it was a public place where women were welcome, uh, and there weren't many places like that. And men could find purpose outside their own individual homes in politics, in business, in uh, you know various sports, men's, athletics, sports, wh- yeah, various men's organizations. But the one place where women were always welcome and, and were told, you know, you belong here too. Alongside the men was church. So this has has been the trend almost from the beginning. The link between the, the suffrage and, and the temperance, um, 
dig a little deeper into mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, I know it wasn't just a one-issue right. m- movement. Right. Uh, the WCTU or the suffrage movement? Either. Okay. Well, the WCTU, uh, especially under uh, Francis Willard, who was its most famous leader, um, I tell my students for the longest time it was the only female statue in Statuary Hall in um, the U.S. Capitol. In the Capitol. Because every state gets two statues, you know, and, and the state of Illinois long ago, one of its two statues uh, was and still is Frances Willard. So she was probably the most, well, arguably, the most famous American woman of uh, the latter decades of the 19th century uh, in this role of, of heading up the WCTU. And she, um, as I said before, had a goal of home protection. Uh, and she called her policy, her do everything policy, which is the WCTU should be involved in all moral uh, crusades, not just uh, stamping out alcohol abuse. Um, another uh, project that the WCTU took on, for instance, was um, trying to ban the use of rare bird feathers in hats. If you think about the late 19th oh, century or the early 20th century. Major plumage. Right, the major plumage uh, that um, it was, uh, uh, you know, it was wrong uh, to, start, <laughs> pardon the pun, pick on and pick out the feathers of rare birds. Uh, uh, just uh, for a fashion statement, it was sort of like PETA and its don't wear fur campaign right. uh, of a more recent era. Uh, so the WCTU had their fingers in a lot of pies. There was a lot of concern uh, about women being tricked into or kidnapped into uh, sex work, uh, as it was called in the late 19th century, white slavery, which today we'd call human trafficking. Right. Uh, and so the WCTU was very concerned about that issue. Just about anything that was seen as protecting uh, the less powerful, whether I guess they be birds or people, uh, the WCTU was involved in. And then, as I said, uh, the WCTU was the largest women's suffrage organization. And uh, back to the issue of rural women, I think that that is an organization that really brought the suffrage movement into many rural areas because the WCTU, as you know from your own grandmother's experience, was a very widespread organization um, in small towns, cities, but, in the countryside. My question mm-hmm. is, it was it was very conservative, though. Mm-hmm. It was tied to the church. It was tied to morals. It was, but but yet women's voting was perceived by many as a radical. Oh yeah. Liberal, it, yeah. yet yet they join together. Yeah, I, I suppose um, students today, on the surface, might find that unusual. Um, why would these conservative women, religiously conservative women who very much identified as nurturers and tenders of the home fire, why they wanted to do this very public thing of voting? And if you think about um, how formal participation in American politics was was viewed in the 19th century, um, it was very much viewed as a male activity, that politics was, you know, rough and tumble, and it uh, 
saloons were a uh, place where a lot of political conversation occurred, and it also was a location where some of the polling places were set up. Uh, so it was seen as very much a male activity. And so for women to justify moving into that realm and becoming voters, one of the chief arguments, both of Francis Willard and um, some of the other suffrage leaders, particularly in um, ultimately in an organization headed by Carrie Chapman Catt, uh, the National American Woman Suffrage Association, was that this involvement in the suffrage movement or any kind of public reform movement was just an extension of the household role. Um, if I'm working to make society better as a whole, that will benefit my individual home, that will benefit the homes of other women. And so there was a lot of maternalist language that was used, certainly by Frances Willard, uh, and she herself never married, um, and by many other suffrage advocates as well. This is just an extension of women's supposed, you know, by the standards of the 19th century, natural caregiving um, attribute. It certainly took the radical edge exactly, off of it, didn't it? Exactly, exactly. And it was also um, seen as part of women's higher um, moral their higher uh, calling. Yeah, their so. higher moral calling. That you took the words right out of my mouth. And and their higher moral sensibility. You know, this was a belief about at least middle class womanhood in the nineteenth century. You mentioned it earlier and I wanted to get back to it, and that is we have the temperance movement, we have the suffrage movement, but then you talked about women in education. Mm -hmm and uh, the role of woman as it moved through the educational process. Mm -hmm. Was that an offshoot of these other movements or? Uh, well, I, it, yes, it was. The um, Declaration of Sentiments in 1848, written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, was the document that well, it was the founding document of the 19th century women's movement, and it was the document um, that people signed on to at the very first women's rights um, convention in Seneca Falls, New York in 1848. And among the demands that are made in that document um, is that women have uh, greater parity with men in formal education. Uh, a few minutes ago, you talked about how radical the right to vote was seen. Uh, that document... Uh, the Declaration of Sentiments seems in some ways very contemporary. You could read it in 2019 and say, wow, those are some of the issues we still talk about today. Um, certainly one area of achievement is that women do have educational opportunities equal to men now. And in fact, as I'm sure you know, women make up a majority. majority of college uh, going people today. Um, but the demand for uh, better education for women, uh, access to the professions for women, um, an end of the sexual double standard, which I don't think we've achieved no. yet, <laughs> um, that women be allowed um, to be members of the clergy, which in some denominations that is the case now. But the most radical of all the demands made in the Declaration of Sentiments was the demand for the right to vote. That was the issue that almost broke up the convention entirely. That is how radical 
the vote in was 1848. seen in 1848. And it was only when uh, Frederick Douglass, the famous uh, abolitionist, got up as a man and spoke in favor of women's right to vote that a majority of the people at the conference signed on to that um, that demand in the document. But anyway, yeah, so uh, this call for improved education for women was very much tied uh, to a couple of larger movements of the 19th century. Yes, women's suffrage, but also the abolition movement. And Oberlin uh, College here in Ohio was the first um, institution of higher education that admitted men and women on an equal basis and also admitted whites and blacks on an equal basis. Um, so I would say educational reform, the abolitionist movement, and women's rights all went hand in hand. Um, the first, um, in my alma mater that I uh, mentioned a while ago, the University of Iowa then was the first public institution that um, accepted women on the same basis with men, and that was in, um, I, I believe, 1847. So 1830s, 1840s, we start seeing the first, first Oberlin in the 1830s, then uh, several years later, the first public university, University of Iowa, allowing women uh, to matriculate aside, uh, beside men. And then the real burst comes after the Civil War with the founding of the so-called Seven Sisters Colleges as um, the female um, partners to the Ivy League schools. And all women's yeah, institutions. Yeah, all women's institutions. And the idea was that we need to have better educated women uh, to be involved in some of these um, larger reform movements, including reforming um, elementary school education. Um, we have uh, uh, Catherine Beecher, the sister of Harriet Beecher Stowe, and of course they're, they both spent time in the Cincinnati area. Catherine Beecher had an idea in the 1840s that uh, Protestants should have an equivalent to uh, nuns. And if uh, we had Catholic women who were dedicating themselves to a life of, of celibacy and service, uh, maybe Protestant women should do that as well, and the service would be teaching young children. The difference was, Catherine Beecher argued, this would only be temporary celibacy. Uh, good Protestant women would, you know, teach when they were in their late teens or early 20s and then eventually marry and teaching. Because there was a duty to yes, procreate exactly. as well. exactly. Be fruitful and multiply. <laughs> That's right. And that um, if women were the teachers of young children, it would give them good practice before they themselves became mothers. This idea of uh, women's natural nurturing uh, abilities, oh, well, who better to take care of young children in schools than women and to use those natural nurturing abilities? And by the way, school boards will pay them less. They will be a cheaper date, so to speak, than if you hire male teachers. And Ohio was the first state where uh, Beecher, where Beecher's um, experiment was uh, put into play. So we see the feminization of um, elementary school teaching beginning in the 1840s. And much of the rationale then for getting uh, women into higher education in subsequent decades was the very best elementary school teachers will be those that have a college education. So, I mean, 
I could get excited and just sitting here right it, now it, talking about the 19th century. So it, much is going it, on. If you were, and if you were a small community, mm-hmm. and and I'm not saying this in any kind of pejorative way, but if you were a small community and got an old maid school teacher. Mm-hmm that stayed around forever and didn't leave and didn't go have her own family, you you were just in heaven. Yes, that's uh, probably the, the true. Stabi- the, yeah, stability. the stability. And you, continue, you would you would have um, someone there that you could continue to pay a low salary. It's low salary. Yeah. We'll be back after this message. We'll be back after this short message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Ohio University's online applied communication program offered by the renowned Scripps College of Communication is designed for associate degree graduates who want to further their education and advance their careers. It's been ranked first in the best online bachelor's in communication and public relations students before profits award 2015-2016 by nonprofit colleges online. In the program, you will study across multiple communication disciplines to gain understanding of how they work together and graduate with a Bachelor of Science in Communication in Applied Communication from the Scripps College. One of the premier colleges of its kind in the nation, the Scripps College of Communication, has been designated as a center of excellence by the state of Ohio. It is considered one of Ohio University's most distinguished programs by the Guide to 101 of Best Values in American Colleges and Universities. Read more about it at ohio.edu slash applied communication. I had an... I had a lot of old relatives when I was a young young boy, but I had an and much 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 older great aunt who was the oddity in the family. Mm. Went to a teacher's college mm-hmm. in the early twentieth century, but she wanted to teach biology. She had every opportunity in the world educationally for to be a teacher. Mm-hmm. But to f- get in any kind of biology class, she had to fight mm-hmm. tooth and nail mm-hmm. to have a science background. Right. I mean, now that that seems to be in play today. Right. <laughs> too. Right. Right. But, Trying but, to urge uh, girls but, and, but, and young but, women into the STEM fields. But, but yes. was that something back then that 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 women were channeled in? certain ways, especially in rural areas or the Midwest? Well, I, I, I do think that... Nursing and teaching. And yeah. And I think that uh, I, I was just watching a documentary on um, MSNBC the other day about the Equal Rights Amendment. Uh, this was a week ago yesterday. And the many of the women who were interviewed were talking about even in the 1950s and 1960s, that they felt as young as then young women that you could be a nurse, you could be a secretary, you could be a teacher, you could be a flight attendant, 
And that was about it. And so, again, you know, when Elizabeth Cady Stanton in the Declaration of Sentiments in 1848 is saying all the professions should be open to women, that was a very radical idea, too. The role of rural women you talked about with the temperance and and suffrage starting sort of in the Midwest, that that movement, Mm -hmm. how then did it grow out to the to the urban areas? Well, I think it really did grow, uh, to mention her name again, under the leadership of Frances Willard, uh, who was not the first uh, president of the WCTU. She was the second, but the most activist. And I think her um, do-everything policy of that organization being involved in a variety of types of reform um really caught on. She was incredibly uh, charismatic and energetic, and I think her leadership played a huge role in extending that movement from the Midwest uh, out then to both coasts and and down into the South. Um, But I I hasten to add that we're talking about Protestant women here. Um, This is also a time... uh, you know, 1880 to 1920 period, where we have a a huge influx of immigrants uh, from Europe, many of whom are Roman Catholic, um, and also uh, Jewish immigrants from uh, Eastern Europe. And in in some ways, um, in the cities on the coasts, an inspiration for women to join something like the WCTU. Uh, well, let's let me put it this way: the motives weren't always pure. Uh, <laughs> it was an organization that uh, put itself in contrast to the practices of many of these immigrant communities, uh, particularly the use of alcohol. And so, yes, my my yes. old grandmother, Catholics used alcohol, yes, Protestants yes, didn't. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And in fact, one of Francis Willard's. Uh, reforms was in uh, various Protestant denominations, including the one I grew up in, the, the Methodists, uh, to get them to use grape juice instead of wine at communion. And, you know, to this day, <laughs> we, there's still grape yes, juice. Yes, <laughs> there's still grape juice at a, at a Methodist communion. So, um, yeah, there was definitely a reactionary element as well, and, and there, a, a definite nativist and anti immigrant strain among some of uh, the women involved in the temperance movement and also uh, the suffrage movement. Uh, one argument that was used, uh, again, late 19th, early 20th century was well, the, you know, the fine, upstanding uh, white woman can't vote. But look, the immigrant man, you know, once he becomes a naturalized citizen, he can vote. Um, so there was definitely a nativist strain. And a class. Mm-hmm. Oh, class. A, yes, yes, yes. And a, a, yeah, very classist um, attitude. So uh, I I want to ask you this question, and it may be convoluted, so bear, yeah. bear with me. It's, you know, someone who came through the civil rights movement and the various movements in the late 50s and 60s mm-hmm. and, and into the, the 70s. I now sort of look around at what's happening today and I get very sad. Mm-hmm. I get very sad because I thought some of the battles that we had collectively fought uh, over time um, 
had been won, uh, or at least we had moved the ball down the field, to use a, a sports analogy. And I'm disappointed and often saddened when I feel that that hasn't happened. Studying women's history, as you do, and I know that you've really concentrated in the 19th century and, and, and all of these different eras that we've talked about even clear up to today, do you look at issues facing women today and go, well, these were the same ones in 1848? I mean, wh where have we come? Yeah, it is amazing. And with my students, when we look back at some of these documents from U.S. women's history, they sound so fresh uh, because so <laughs> many of yeah, unfortunately, right? because so many of the issues are still with us. Uh, we were looking at a document the other day. Um, written in 1920, within just a few months after the 19th Amendment had become part of the Constitution, in which a woman named Crystal Eastman had written, what, uh, you know, her list of what the next steps were. And the one that is seems particularly fresh today is, well, boys and girls need to be socialized differently. Boys need to understand that they should know how to dust and use the vacuum cleaner and do some of the emotional work in the family, you know, learn how to write thank you notes and, yeah. uh, and, and, and Christmas cook cards. And cook a meal. And cook a meal. Um, she saw that girls increasingly were going to learn so-called boy stuff, uh, to uh, especially in the world of employment outside the household, but that there had to be a trade-off and boys needed to be socialized to be men in a different way. Um, and she was concerned about the so-called um, second shift, that women, as they became more represented in paid employment, would still come home and do all the housework and still be the people in charge of household duties and responsibilities. And she said, you know, that's that's going to be a double burden. Boys and men need to learn to take on their share of those kind of tasks as well. And I know um, overall there's been improvement since the year Crystal Eastman wrote about this topic in 1920, but we still see that women do have more of that double burden. They are more represented in the paid labor force than ever before, but I, they're I still just, largely in charge of the I, I just interviewed tasks. a woman who talked about that very issue mm -hmm. of time management mm -hmm. of, uh, with women and how t they're expected to do it all. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's sometimes just not physically mm -hmm. possible right, right. Uh, to, to do it all. But it's still an expectation in, right. in 2019. Yes, yes. Um, and I think about how uh, our society since the 1970s and, and 1980s, we're rethinking it somewhat now, but really in uh, popular television shows, movies, commercials, um, played up the superwoman image, right? Remember that commercial, I can bring home the bacon, oh, fry yes. it up in a pan? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that is uh, something that was, I think, detrimental to women's self-esteem, That those kind of images of the superwoman 
in popular culture because who could really live up to that sort of image? Um, and a lot of women felt badly about themselves when they when they couldn't. Um, I'm hoping that my students today have more realistic expectations. But of course, I think everyone needs to take uh, women's history courses uh, because they can learn that these issues they think are only facing their generation for the first time have a history and find some role models in history that can be inspiration, uh, inspirational to young women today as they continue to fight some of these same battles. I see the freshman class in Congress and, mm -hmm. uh, and more and more women and, and part of me is going, yes, that's, mm -hmm. that, that, that's a great thing. And then another part of me goes, why did it take oh, so I long? Know, I mean, I know. why did it? What is wrong with us that it took so long? Right. I mean, because you look at Europe and they were well advanced in in incorporating women in, into their political mainstream. Yeah. Uh, for for want of a better term, and and we're just now in 2019 thinking that this is a great thing, and it is a mm -hmm. great thing, but it it shouldn't be uh, necessarily all that noteworthy. <laughs> right. Uh, let me. Uh, give some perspective on that. If we look at women's political history, we could say in the U.S. that it goes in 72-year cycles. In 1776, Thomas Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, we become an independent nation, all men are created equal. So then in 1848, 72 years later, Elizabeth Cady Stanton uses very cleverly Jefferson's language to speak of gender issues in her Declaration of Sentiments, uh, all men and women are created equal. It's another 72 years before the 19th Amendment grants a large portion of the female population the right to vote. I hasten to add Black women in the South are still prevented. Um, Chinese and Japanese immigrant women and, and South Asian immigrant women, it won't be until the 1940s and the early 1950s until they even have the right to become naturalized citizens. Wow. And uh, Native American women, it'll be another four years before they get citizenship in 1924. So. Um, it's not even all women uh, who received the right to vote in 1920, but okay, 1776, 1848, 1920, and then 72 years later in 1992, we get the first year of the woman, remember? The yes, year after yes. the Anita Hill, Clarence yes, Thomas yes. Uh, confrontation. And now here we are um, last year. In the 2018 election, people are saying, oh, it's another year of the woman. Uh, I, I wish we could speed this up, Tom, and we didn't have to wait every 72 years for a major breakthrough. I think that's a great mm. place to end. Thank you so no, much, Dr. Thanks. Jellison. Thanks, I, uh, Tom. And, and I want to have you back so that we can talk about – I know you studied uh, weddings and, mm -hmm. and the culture of weddings and also first ladies. So right. we have a lot of topics to talk about in the future. I hope I'd that you come it. back. Okay. Thank you. Today, we've been talking with Dr. Katherine Jellison, Director of the History Department at Ohio University and Co-Chairwoman of the Rural Women's Studies Association. She talks about the role of rural women in some of the early fights for equal rights.
Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your podcast outlets. <laughs>